I have a, uh, a dear friend, um, that may come as a surprise to some of you, but um, <laughs> uh, his name is Mark, and I actually met him when our church uh, first built this building uh, many years ago, and uh, he lives in Mississippi. Uh, he helped us with the financing part of it, and we have been dear friends ever since, and we often get together. Um, he's, a, he's a strong believer. But he is a real estate agent, and he has employed a friend who did all kinds of work for him, a carpenter, like rehab work for some of his homes. And his friend recently went deer hunting and uh, climbed up into the deer stand, and a strap broke, and he fell, broke his neck, and he died. Now, that's the brutal part of the story. However, there's, there's much more to tell. About 18 months ago, uh, Mark, my friend, had called this guy to do another job for him and gave him specific instruction what to do, what not to do in a house. And apparently the guy kind of ignored him and ripped up a floor that Mark didn't want ripped up. And he, you know, he's kind of peeved about it, and so he called the guy. And, you know, they had some words. The, the guy at the end of the conversation begrudgingly said, okay, I'll fix it, okay? But he never did. And so Mark was really upset. And he, he just couldn't understand why this guy would, would, would be this way. You know, they see each other in the store, and he's just like, I don't even want to see the guy. They never really had another conversation about the issue of the floor. And Mark even offered, he talked to the, the buyer and the seller, and he said to the seller, you know, I'll split the cost with you to put a new floor in. And then, then the buyer got into it, and he said, hey, listen, I, I'm going to put my own floor in there anyway, so don't, don't worry about it. So, you know, no harm, no foul. But Mark was still ticked <laughs> at the carpenter for, for not doing what he said he would do. And he just didn't feel like calling him anymore. Recently, he had uh, seen him in a store. The guy was limping, and he went up to him and found out he had uh, some knee issues. And, but they never had the conversation about the floor, and he was still kind of upset with him. And then right after that, the guy went on his last hunting trip. Mark said it was, it was pride that kept him from dealing with this in the way that he should have. So he kept his distance. And he didn't heed God's prompting to, to forgive. He didn't find out this guy's version to listen to his side of the story. Um, and certainly didn't reconcile the situation. God is really using this with him. I don't think there's anybody in here who can't relate to the need for us to forgive. Now, normally in a, in a sermon, I might, you know, give you the main point later on but here it is right now, okay? Don't wait to love. Don't wait to forgive. That's the application. Forgiveness is the hardest thing to do as a Christian in terms of practicing. Whether it's a parent, a spouse, even our kids, or a brother and sister in Christ. You know, I have been a Christian for over 50 years. So I was converted at one and a half years old. <laughs> I've learned that there seems to be a kind of primary lesson that God is giving us, and that is this. 
in terms of working out our salvation. That living the Christian life is a test tube to see how God's forgiveness translates into our own relationships, into our own life. Forgiveness in the vertical is necessary for forgiveness in the horizontal. For forgiveness to be effective, it has to have a source, right? That provides the impetus and the strength to forgive. Listen, sappy stories aren't enough. Anecdotal evidence isn't enough. There's got to be something that transcends and fuels our human experience. So that forgiveness is actual, not just something we talk about. I think you'll agree with me that none of us can do this ourselves, right? None of us can do this in our own strength. There's not a person in this room, I believe, who cannot share a story about how living with unforgiveness has impacted themselves and their other relationships. We've all done it. Pride and stubbornness calls us to stall and wait and stonewall, right? If we had to define this, let's just say this, that forgiveness is not a feeling. I don't have to wait for a feeling before I let go of an offense. Forgiveness is deciding not to get back. It's not to seek vengeance, even if it's just the silent treatment, right? But it's to let the other person off from the debt of the offense. Vengeance is desiring the perpetrator to suffer a little bit. And that's a lot different than justice. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But justice is doing what is best for the relationship, what is best for the community. Timothy Keller has a book called Forgive. And in it, he quotes Alan Jacobs, who says this. When a society rejects the Christian account of who we are, it does not become less moralistic, but far more so. Because it retains an inchoate sense of justice. Inchoate means rudimentary or just beginning. An inchoate sense of justice but has no means of offering and receiving forgiveness. The great moral crisis of our time is not, as many fellow Christians believe, sexual licentiousness, but rather vindictiveness. Social media serves as crack for moralists. There's no high like the high you get from punishing malefactors. But like any addiction, this one serves from the inexorable law of diminishing returns. The mania for punishment will therefore get worse before it gets better. End quote. What this means is that a society that is searching for all kinds of ways to reject God cannot escape of living in the moral universe that God has created. 
And so our desires become discordant, out of whack. And so you have this cancel culture today. People become uber-sensitized to their own sense of morality and crown themselves as the final judge and jury, right? Now listen, when you reject God, you're always going to have to fill it with something because we have this kind of God-shaped vacuum, right? Uh, Solomon talks about this in, in Ecclesiastes. So you're going to have to fill your heart with something. There is no place for forgiveness, no context for forgiveness when we reject the source, even though we still want it and need it deep down. We've rejected God's moral order as a culture, but we're still made in his image. We're kind of like a car with a broken steering wheel. We veer all over the place, pressing on the gas, but we can't control where we're going, running into things. By the way, while we claim the vehicle just appeared, nobody made the vehicle. So what do we have today? Race baiting, multiple gender references, a skewed view of tolerance. These are just some of the tools in this new kind of bumper car society. Just running into everybody. And everyone is just crashing, crashing into each other. And the only direction we have is our own fleshly desires. Keller notes C.S. Lewis, who famously wrote about the impossibility of instilling an ethic of love without a God of wrath who both models loving behavior and punishes unloving behavior. He describes modern moral education's efforts to develop character in students who have been taught moral relativism. He says, in a, in a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make man without chess and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. End quote. Here's a couple points to take home. Using modern day models concerning forgiveness leaves us woefully short relationally. And when God's perspective on reality is rejected, we will have an inadequate diagnosis and remedy. The cancel culture is an outworking of man's thinking that he's autonomous, not beholden to God, his law, his grace, and accepting forgiveness, giving forgiveness. Paul said, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And then, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. You know, therapeutic ventures often dismiss forgiveness because they reject a, a biblical worldview. 
In the book, Forgive, we read about author and teacher Rebecca Pippert, who had the opportunity to audit some graduate-level classes at Harvard. And one of them was Systems of Counseling. And at one point, the professor presented a case study in which therapeutic methods were used to help a man uncover his deep hostility and anger towards his mother. And this helped the client understand himself in new ways. Pippert then asked the professor how he would have responded if the man had asked for help to forgive her. The professor responded that forgiveness was a concept that assumed moral responsibility and many other things that scientific psychology could not speak to. He said, don't force your values about forgiveness onto the patient. When some of the students responded with dismay, the professor tried to relieve the tension with a little bit of humor and said, if you guys are looking for a changed heart, I think you're in the wrong department. However, as Pippert observed later, the truth is, we are looking for a changed heart. (laughs) Secular reason all by itself cannot give us a basis for deep and powerful message such as forgiveness and redemption. That's the need of the hour. Marganita Lasky was born in 1915 to a family of free thinkers and intellectuals, and after schooling, she became an author and radio host, TV personality, who also helped to pen the Oxford English Dictionary. She was also known for being a staunch atheist. She hated Christianity and Christians. And near the end of her life, she surprised many with this revealing confession. She said this, What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. Lasky acknowledges what seems apparent. We sin, we all sin, and we need forgiveness. Forgiveness is indeed unique to the Christian experience. I don't mind quoting C.S. Lewis. In fact, I could quote him all sermon if I wanted to because he's worth it. But he also attended a conference on comparative religions and the, the debate was if there was anything unique to the Christian faith. And he said this, that's easy. It's grace. You see, every other religion has an eightfold path or codes and laws or steps one must follow to attain God's favor. But authentic forgiveness by a perfectly righteous God is something extraordinary. Amen to that. You know, forgiveness only makes sense if there's really been a real offense, if there's real sin committed. And of course, I'll always meet up with people who doubt the existence of sin. Um, I don't teach anymore. I taught for 22 years at a local college here on philosophy and ethics. But in the class, I would often... Um, ask students about whether right and wrong really existed and make the point that forgiveness doesn't make sense unless there really is a right or wrong. But I would often ask them too, is that um, 
Maybe the reason you don't know that sin exists is because I'm assuming you've never had children. (laughs) Number two, you never visited a jail. Or maybe you've never talked to a person who's been ravaged by abuse. Right? And let me, in, let me let you in on something. I don't have to know any of that to know that there's sin because I just, I don't even have to look beyond my own nose. Right? Pride, arrogance, selfishness that exists in our own personal experience faces us with the reality that something is wrong in our fleshly hearts. I mean, if, if sin really exists and it clues us in to a, a moral order that we can distinguish between good and evil. And I think even the hardcore atheist has to concede that there's, there's something wrong with rape. There's something wrong with the abuse of a child. Racism is a, is a real offense There are truly bad things. Do we just get this from a vacuum? You know, most people don't have a hard time recognizing that those other people do stuff wrong. But it gets really sticky when we look at ourselves. We're many times not as quick to acknowledge the sin problem. But if we sin, and we do, we need forgiveness. We need God for that. The reason God sent Jesus to the earth was to position us to experience the forgiveness of God. The psalmist said, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. And in Acts, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And Paul wrote in Colossians, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Without forgiveness from God, no disguise can keep us from feeling the full effects of sin. An unknown author said this, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us a savior. You know, we get to understand one thing about people being at an impasse and broken marriages and folks experiencing hurt and disappointment. It would be the idea that God forgives us because of Christ, and we therefore can forgive others. So those who have been forgiven are positioned to forgive And forgiveness is the most supernatural manifestation in the human experience. I get all the 
miracles in the world, all the healings in the world don't mean a thing unless I walk in forgiveness and I understand forgiveness and I'm forgiving others as well. According to the latest medical and psychological research, forgiving is good for the soul and the body. People who forgive benefit from better immune functioning and lower blood pressure, have better mental health than people who do not forgive, feel better physically, have lower amounts of anger and fewer symptoms of anxiety and depression, maintain more satisfying and long-lasting relationships. Michael McCullough of the National Institute of Healthcare Research said, when we allow ourselves to feel like victims or sit around dreaming up how to retaliate against people who have hurt us, these thought patterns take a toll on our minds and bodies. Hmm. You know, when we look at society, it's probably not too difficult for most of us to see these bad models that we find in relationships. But maybe we need to take the microscope and look at the church. I'm not just talking our church, but the evangelical church. Are there ways that Christians view forgiveness that are damaging and wrong? The easy answer is yes. <laughs> because like I referred to before, many Christians talk a good game, but then distance themselves from real-world applications to forgive. Fractured families, brothers and sisters in Christ, angry and divided provide enough evidence for us to see that. And then we, you know, we keep our distance from those who hurt us, like my friend Mark, and he sees it now, and he's, boy, I tell you about a guy who's motivated to make things right, it's Mark. Okay. Keep our distance from those who hurt us without any real attempts to reconcile. That is an accepted practice within Christendom just as long as I don't cuss and I'm not violent. <laughs> A little skewed. Right? I think there are other practices. Not just within our tribe, but I think championed by our tribe of evangelicalism that I think brings more hurt. And it's a type of forgiveness without a thought to justice that in the end creates more hurt on the victim. For instance, when we tell a spouse to forgive her consistent wife-beating husband and just forget about it, we do harm. When we tell a person to just forgive and forget about their sexual abuse without nary a thought to justice, we misappropriate biblical forgiveness. Justice and forgiveness. Forgiveness and trust. These are tensions we don't always understand, and we practice far less. Listen, 
I am making, you know, no panacea answer here. Relationships are hard, layered, complicated. But can we at least have a conversation about justice in the midst of forgiveness? Can we at least consider the victim? God wants us all to live with, I think, the freedom of our hearts in forgiving. But he also wants us to walk as a holy people in community. And by the way, okay, we've all sinned, right? And I think when, when the body is healthy, we know the worst about each other and we still love each other. We extend grace and forgiveness to one another. And there's no need to run when somebody finds out my worst stuff. That's Christian community. I'm advocating that there be more conversation about justice. I'm advocating that for a Christian community that values holy living, living and forgiveness to work this out, no matter how difficult and complicated it may be. Okay? Anybody have an easy time forgiving their spouse or children or friends who've really hurt them? No, we know it's difficult, but we do it. Not just because we should, but we love those that are closest to us. We don't want anything between us. And we know we have to forgive for the relationship to work, but it's still hard. So I'm not claiming it's easy. In the Forgive book, Rachel Denhollander is noted who's a former gymnast who was sexually assaulted multiple times by the USA gymnastic physician Larry Nasser. And in 2018, she broke through the wall of official denial and was the first woman to publicly accuse him, which led eventually to hundreds of other women treated by Nasser to come forward with their own stories of abuse and assault. Den Hollander is a Christian, yet in her work as an advocate, she often saw churches, in her words, routinely mishandling sexual assault allegations, counseling victims to forgive and forget, not listening when alarm bells were sounded about someone's behavior, and even, many victims alleged, interfering with or being negative toward criminal investigations. She learned of women being told to forgive and to not report husbands who were abusing their daughters. And at the bottom of much of this was churches teaching on concepts like unity, forgiveness, and grace that resulted in abusers being forgiven while victims were silenced by being characterized as bitter. She said prominent Christian teachers have implied you haven't really forgiven and trusted until you can be thankful for the evil done to you. But is that really forgiveness? 
And she said she's heard this from authority figures so often that she's felt alone in her grief. Here's some godly perspective I offer to us on this. Again, I'm not offering to you, you know, five steps we have to all follow. I'm just trying to pinpoint some concepts within the scriptures that we have to include in our forgiveness discussion. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Blessed are those who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. And then in Zechariah, from the Common English Bible, I like the way this translates, the Lord of heavenly forces proclaims, make just and faithful decisions. Show kindness and compassion to each other. I offer to you the cross, which is, I think, a perfect marriage of justice and forgiveness. See, one is not the enemy of the other. The cross is a picture of God's judgment as well as grace. It presents to each of us an opportunity to come face to face with our own sin. It's why communion, which we're going to do here shortly, is a chance for each of us to face our own rebellion, heart issues, and unconfessed offenses. We have sinned before a holy God. The cross is also a call for the abuser to repent and side with God and the victim to condemn the evil that they have done. All of us have sinned and must see the cross as the intersection of God's justice and forgiveness. And when we do this, and when we truly repent, we don't use grace as an excuse to escape human justice. Um, on my way back from Nashville a couple weeks ago, I got a speeding ticket in Van Buren, Missouri, which apparently is a kissing cousin to Max Creek. I don't have to tell you anymore if you know what I'm talking about. It's Speed Trap Central, apparently, of other people I've talked to. I did not plead with a judge about the speed trap and how unjust it was. I did not say I should not pay my fine. I still will pay the fine. But I'm also certain of God's forgiveness for my offense. Now, I'm not claiming that all human relationships are as easy as a speeding fine, but that justice and forgiveness can coexist. Let's consider the difference for a minute between justice and vengeance. When I refuse to seek reconciliation at any level or stage, when my heart has pleasure in seeing the offender suffer, 
seeing them only and defining them only through the lens of their sin instead of also being made in the image of God. I am more than likely siding with vengeance. Justice defines the person as being made in the image of God and deserving of love, but also responsible for their sin. Now, reconciliation needs forgiveness first. Okay? There's a difference between reconciliation and forgiveness. I hope we, we can understand this, right? I can forgive, but maybe not be reconciled. In other words, my heart is clean, and I want to reconcile, but maybe the other party doesn't want to. You know, Paul says, when at all possible, be at peace with all people. And sometimes it's not possible. Some people just aren't interested. So I should always forgive 100% of the time. Okay? But sometimes reconciliation is not possible. The person maybe is not repenting, um, or maybe they're just not interested. But reconciliation needs forgiveness from the victim and a full repentant perpetrator. So I don't want to refuse reconciliation, but I desire a genuine community where justice is practiced and the perpetrator accepts full responsibility. And in all of this, i got to watch my own heart. When we have this discussion, I realize how easy it is for us to point the finger, to just feel ourselves a little superior, okay? Feel I'm different, okay? But we're not. We all sin. We all have offended. And so we need to be forgiven, too. We are recipients and practitioners of forgiveness. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore anyone, um, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So we're to keep watch of our own hearts. Don't let pride to see the offender as less than he or she is. Don't think you're sinless and also not often needing forgiveness. We're to run to Christ. We're to have the tough conversations and not waste a minute in getting it done. So what are some takeaways today, okay? One, do not waste another minute stonewalling another person because of a prior offense. These attitudes reflect upon our faithfulness to God and the health of our families and our community. Number two, may we not weaponize forgiveness by expecting a victim to continue an unhealthy relationship where abuse is likely to continue. Number three, let us embrace a biblical perspective on forgiveness that accepts God's grace in our hearts to forgive others. Next, may we forgive others with a humble heart, reminding ourselves we need constant forgiveness. 
There's a lot more to say about this topic. And we'll cover that, some of it at least, in the next couple weeks. Again, my desire is to consider these biblical concepts, acknowledge the difficulty, sometimes the mistakes that we have made in, in practicing this. But as your pastor, I'm asking you, imploring you, that we be a community marked by its forgiveness. Again, I can forgive and should forgive a hundred percent of the time to where I am not seeking vengeance against another, where my heart is clean. That doesn't always mean reconciliation will take place, but I want it. I desire it. Jen and I were taking a walk yesterday. I was just kind of telling her what I was speaking on. I said, can you think of people in our lives that maybe we need to go to? You know, we had some. And, you know, as we talked about it, some of it is like, you know, I, they told me they really weren't interested. But there might be one or two in there where I think, I think we could have a conversation. So if our hearts are open, if we're allowing the Holy Spirit to, to teach us, I think God could do some pretty cool things in our lives. I don't know about you, but I just don't like my head hitting the pillow with my heart heavy. I want my heart and conscience clean, that, uh, that forgiveness is uh, a part of who we are and as a family as well, okay? Let's pray.